Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Tier Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. Today, we are delighted to welcome two distinguished experts to speak on our first Japan Memo episode on space policy. Dr. Suzuki Kazuto and Dr. Bleden Bowen. Kazuto Sensei is Professor of Science and Technology Policy at the Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Tokyo and Senior Fellow at the Asia Pacific Initiative, an independent policy think tank in Tokyo. Kazuto Sensei has been very influential in shaping Japan's national space policy. He has contributed to the drafting of Japan's basic space law in 2008 and currently serves as a member of two subcommittees for space security policy for the Japanese National Space Policy Commission. He is also avid watcher of football, supporting the Hokkaido Consadore Sapporo J1 League team. Bleden is lecturer in international relations at the University of Leicester, specializing in space warfare, space policy, and international relations in outer space. Bleden has briefed numerous audiences and governments on these subjects, including UK Prime Minister's Policy Unit, the UK Ministry of Defense, and US Department of Defense. His most recent book, War and Space Strategy, Space Power, Geopolitics, presents a theory of space power and considers the implication of space technologies on strategy in international relations. He also grew up playing Final Fantasy. So, welcome, Kazuko Sensei and Bleden. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So before diving straight into Japan's space policy, let's go through the uniqueness of space domain for listeners who may not have expertise in this field. Over the past decades, we are increasingly hearing about space security, economic opportunities in space, and major power competition in space between United States, China, Russia. So, what is the uniqueness of space when compared with other domains such as air, land, and sea? And what do you think people often get wrong about the domain? The uniqueness of space is that It doesn't really have the geostrategic, geopolitical framework because the territoriality of the national air, land, sea space is the basis of international security and the balance between the powers of the state. For example, we are now talking about the you know, invasion to Ukraine. It means that the Russian forces crosses the border. This is a geographically defined space. But in outer space, there is no such borders and everything moves. The spacecrafts, such as satellites, pass over any territories. It goes around the world. So basically, you can't really control movement of the spacecraft or any items that goes around the world based on the geography. That's the big difference from the Traditional thinking of the geostrategic, geospatial relationship. I think that's、uh, very similar to cyberspace as well. So, Bledin, did you have any thoughts both in the realm of security, but also when we think about the geoeconomic implications of space? I would be approaching it quite differently from how Kazuto would be in terms of there are many parallels to how we think about the air and the sea in strategic terms. As in space, so whilst there are no sort of necessarily obvious physical determinants to behavior, like、uh, you know mountains or valleys or straits or seas, as there are in space, it is still a volume. It's still a, a place that is shaped by gravitational forces 
and also areas of radiation, for example, and also different kinds of orbital regimes. So whilst issues of perhaps sovereignty work differently in space because it's more platform-centric rather than area-orientated, so states are sovereign over airspace or territorial waters and, to a lesser extent, exclusive economic zones or EEZs. In space, it's the platforms that are sovereign, but they do fly into quite clearly defined orbital regimes. So in terms of the way the technologies work, you can start apportioning out different areas of space in terms of low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, geostationary orbit, different kinds of orbits within those areas as well. So in low Earth orbit, you have sun-synchronous orbits, polar orbits of various kinds. There are sort of ways you can start mapping out the Earth orbit environment. And in a very basic conceptual sense, for those who are more interested perhaps in the military strategic perspective rather than maybe legal or jurisdiction elements to outer space, there are many similarities in terms of they are really about states exercising influence and control over objects and information that travel through that place or medium. So humans can live there. It's difficult to station things permanently there. Even ships have to come home at some point from the seas. So things travel through there and things of value to us travel through there or are gathered from there as well. So at this point, we're looking at information that is gathered from platforms in space. In terms of strategic lines of communication, for example, and influencing an environment, there are many parallels to the way states and military power interacts with the land and the sea as well. So in that sense, and I'll probably be using the word space power a lot in this conversation, there's a conceptual equivalent really with air power and sea power because you're using an environment for the interests of the state. And of course, commercial actors find their place within wider state interests as well. That's how I approach it. And that's sort of the fundamental argument in my book. That's actually really interesting how um, we perceive space is very different by the purposes and I think the goals and which disciplinary area that you look at space. Going back to Japan, so Japan has one of the oldest space policies in the world dating back to the 1960s and is regarded as a leading space power in Asia. However, Japan's space policy has changed quite significantly over the decades from being limited to peaceful purposes to becoming a national security imperative. So the new space basic plan revised in 2020 states Japan's aspiration as a space power, Uchuryo Taikoku, and recently Prime Minister Kishida has announced that by the latter half of the 2020s, Japan is aiming to put Japanese astronaut, the first non-American astronaut on moon, or aspirations to launch a probe to explore Mars in 2024. So Kasuto you have been deeply involved in Japan's space policy since 2008. In your view, what are the major shifts in Japan's policy over the past decade? And what are the main drivers behind these policy changes? I've been involved in space policy before 2008. So I, I know uh, a lot. Uh, this is a long history. One of the big difference is that first space started as a strategic items and strategic issue. So it was uh, closely connected with nuclear technology. That's why the Japanese government and Japanese parliament, the Diet, has restricted the access of the military authorities like uh, Ministry of Defense, Self-Defense Force to use and operate and develop 
space capabilities. So they are not allowed to use even space-based services such as weather forecast or telecommunications. Because things evolved in the 80s, you know, there were more commercial services available. People are now using space more and more. It was awkward not to let the self-defense force use space. So 1985, there was a change to, you know, allow Japanese self-defense force to use the commercial services. And then there were an increasing number of the commercial services providing the quasi-intelligence information from the Earth observation satellites. So gradually people realized the use of space and, of course, the change of the security nature around Japan, particularly the development of North Korean missile and the Chinese uh, military capabilities. In order to enhance the, the defense capability in Japan, people realize that we need to collect information and intelligence. We have been de- depending on the commercial services and still now, but the Japanese government realized that we need to have our own satellites. So that's why 2002, there was an information gathering satellite, which is uh, almost a uh, spy satellite launched to get information on North Korea and China. 2008, there was a change of the policy by establishing the basic space law to allow the use of space for security purposes. So that's the sort of a brief history of Japanese space. How would you then describe the recent space aspirations announced by Japanese government? To what extent do you think these are driven from the growing space capabilities by China? I don't think there is some sort of a space race between Japan and, and China. I think the Japanese politicians are understanding the importance of space in a different way. On the one hand, they are now realizing the usefulness of using space. And also they are now understanding the importance as a symbolic power of space to send, for example, the first non-American astronaut to the moon. Probably there are gradual sense that, you know, the the world is shifting not to the traditional capabilities in land, air and sea, having more capabilities in cyber and space. These are manifested in the national defense programs in 2018. In the recent years, the politicians realize the importance of space. It's the sort of a latecomer kind of a Sputnik shock in the 1950s in the United States. You know, people are now thinking that, you know, Japan needs to demonstrate its power, demonstrating the civilian and military space capabilities. Very interesting. Bledin, do you think Japan's policy development and and drivers for Japan's space policy is similar to other countries? And for instance, uh, you've been involved in the discussions in UK and UK now has national space strategy. And do you think it's driven by similar drivers or policy interests and threat perceptions? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And that's often a question I pose to my students who I teach at Leicester on space politics, both undergraduate and, and masters. When we look at many of the more established space powers, I and mean, it's interesting to hear Japan being referred to as more emerging or latecomer sometimes when I'm thinking it's one of the more established space powers. You know, Japan has been a very capable space power in many select areas for, for quite some time. I think in terms of comparisons for me the uk and india are the most interesting in order to like put japan in context so on the security military side you have the obvious dominance of the united states for both the uk and japan 
like Japan, the UK outsourced a lot of its military intelligence base capabilities to the United States. The big difference is, of course, that Britain maintained a nuclear bomb program and Japan has never gone down sort of that nuclear weapons route. In terms of space, uh, military space and intelligence space activities, the Japanese military has, you know, had a very good working relationship with uh, the US military and intelligence communities uh, on, on that regard, you know back into the middle of the Cold War, especially when the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Forces started using a lot more US military communication systems as well to support Japanese Navy activities. Even though Japan has not had sort of a military space infrastructure up until maybe very recently now, it's been able to use and benefit from the American one for, for quite some time. And, and that's you know similar to the UK in that regard. So it's only now that Japan is maybe getting more interested in having more Japanese national security space assets of various kinds, both for intelligence and the military communities, but also the civilian government use as well. So security more broadly defined, not just sort of military or intelligence activities. Industrially and economically, India is an interesting one to compare with Japan because Japan and India were two of the smaller but also Asian space powers that were putting in the necessary investments in essential rocket and satellite technologies in the 60s and the 1970s with more sort of techno-industrial and development motivations behind them. India had perhaps a more blatant but latent military rationale behind a lot of what ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization, was doing. Whereas in Japan, I think there was a, a more of a cordon sanitaire between techno-industrial development of Japanese rocket technologies and science and the telecom sector in Japan. Whereas within India, especially with India's so-called peaceful nuclear explosion in 1974, and then its more overt missile program in the early 80s, Indian space power became more overtly militarily relevant by the 1980s in Japan, that is only now becoming more apparent. But the dual-use technology concerns were there in Japan in the Cold War as well, because the Americans were very nervous about Hideo Itokawa's work, so the, you know, the so-called father of the Japanese space program. Japan cooperated a lot with India in the Cold War as well, in terms of lots of um, sounding rocket development. The Americans were concerned about um, the work with the Japanese on solid-fueled rockets, you know, for spaceflight and satellite purposes, but of course the dual-use nature of that did cause some concerns in the United States. And then in the 1980s and 90s, you had a lot of high-level industrial concerns in the United States with the emerging telecoms, satellite telecom sector in, in Japan as well. They've gone down sort of separate routes now, I think, industrially, where Japan is more successful as a, as a global industrial competitor in space compared to India. But in terms of motivations, there's I think there's a lot of overlaps and similarities to be found between India, UK and Japan. Today, Japan and India are far more significant space powers than the UK. They've left the United Kingdom behind because the UK is just totally reliant on the United States for most military things and is highly integrated in the European system for space industry and commerce as well. Thank you. That's very interesting. And we are also already seeing a growing kind of space relationship developing between Japan and UK, but also with Japan, India, or even the quadrilateral security dialogue framework um, between US, Japan and Australia and India. And we can come back to this later. Speaking of dual use technology, that's actually a very interesting point. And I had a question for Kazuto Sensei. What kind of capabilities do you think position Japan as a technology leader in space? And 
Also thinking that back in April 2021, Japan's Metropolitan Police Agency attributed PLA-affiliated hackers for attacking Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency JAXA and the Japanese space businesses. That also shows the competitiveness of Japan's space technologies, but also vulnerabilities of Japanese space industries. You've also been very much involved in the discussion around economic security. How do you see space in the discussion protecting technology outflow and around economic security? The Japanese space policy, uh, I think the blending was right. Uh, Japan and India had a sort of a similar path of the development of space capabilities by separating the civilian and the military space. And there are very limited exchange in between these two. Although India, there was an intention of using the civilian technological capabilities for military purposes, but Japan has more focused on the civilian case because of the legal definition in the 1969 uh, Diet Resolution, which limited the access of the military authority to space. That creates the situation where the Japanese space policy focuses on the R&D. First, it was uh, aiming to catch up with the advanced spacefaring countries like United States, But gradually, you know, Japan is trying to create its own new technology. And I think one of the reasons why JAXA was targeted was that there are so much seed of technologies going on in JAXA. The problem in Japan is that these seed technologies, these baby technologies, are often not to become an industrial goods. It's not going to be the actual satellite. It's not a source of competitiveness. And most of the R&D is just for the R&D sake. So we do have a very unique and new technologies, but these are not really applied to the industrial, commercial and application programs. And that's why people are targeting JAXA, but not the industry. The one that you mentioned about the Japanese space company, uh, which targeted by the cyber attack in 2020, I think, was a Mitsubishi uh, Electric. They are not focusing on the space component. They are attacking on the defense component. So they are doing the defense side and uh, they are not even paying attention to the space side because the technologies uh, that, you know, these hackers are looking for are in JAXA, but not in the industry. That's the sort of uniqueness that you you can think of the Japanese link between the technological issue and the commercial applicational issues. That's actually a very interesting point. Before kind of going back into the more the military technology side of the discussion, I was wondering uh, if is maybe if you have anything to add on where Japan is playing a leading role in technologies for maybe more of a peaceful use of space or civilian use of space that you mentioned in the beginning? I think one of the unique challenge that the Japanese company is doing is uh, the one called the Astroscale. This is a, a space venture startup. It's attracting a bigger attention. Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, have visited the office in UK. This is the company which is operating the satellite to capture the space debris. And this is the new commercial service none of other countries have done. You know, there are some technological experiments, but this company is the first one to operate commercially to remove space debris, which is the space junk, which is now increasing a lot and uh, becoming an obstacle for further use of Earth orbit. Astroscale has 
developed as a commercial company to remove space debris, which is good for the international space use and international community. But this technology can also use as a space weapon uh, because you can capture the hostile satellite and you can take it out. You know, if you can take out the garbage, you can take out the operational satellite. So the problem of this commercial operation is how to make sure that the people won't have a suspicion that, you know, this operation, this service is not aiming for the active satellite, but it's aiming only for the uh, space junks. In doing so, the Japanese government has established the new guidelines, which is to make sure that, you know, the, everyone will get the information about the intent of this spacecraft to remove only the space debris. And so in order to do so, it will provide all the orbital information, where they are, and which direction it's going, and, you know, which target that they are trying to capture. So that by providing all this information, people can verify using with the telescope and the radar to identify that this satellite is exactly where it says it's just moving towards the space debris rather than the hostile satellites. That's the sort of a new technology and a new legal or, let's say, new uh, operational framework to enhance the transparency of the activities in space because, you know, a lot of activities in space is usually very classified and therefore the actions of space are not really known and particularly the military satellites are, are classified so they are not providing any information. Because Japan has focused on this civilian activities, we try to be a big civilian country. You mentioned that Prime Minister Kishida has mentioned Japan become a space-using power, Uchuryo Taikoku, which means the great power of the space user. And I think this is the sort of an understanding that, you know, we are not focusing too much on the military side of space, but, you know, we are using our competence and our capabilities in civilian side and to you know, use those capabilities for the goods of the international community. That's actually a very interesting point, because I think Japan is often misunderstood as because Japan has these technologies, Japan might be willing to use this as a counter space technology and some think tanks or media would often cite that. But it's also interesting because at the same time, other countries like China, for instance, is actually actively developing counter space capabilities. So in this sense, Blood, and I had a question for you. What do you think are the major trends for countries that are really trying to increase offensive space capabilities? Japan has been recently investing a lot um, to enhance defense capabilities in space, such as enhancing the space situational awareness systems or developing a space-based surveillance satellite or developing early warning missile constellations and um, trying to kind of invest in this area. Do you think these efforts are keeping up with the rapidly developing situation of space defense? Generally speaking, as long as more and more states are modernizing their military forces and their economies and political and social infrastructures with space systems, they're all making space a more target-rich environment. So there's more and more incentives for disrupting, harassing, or 
destroying space infrastructure. So the development of weapons really is a symptom of a political, economic, military trend, not really the cause of the problem. I think uh, you asked earlier what people get wrong about space. Well, I, th- I think that's that's one of them. Space weapons are confused with the cause of problems rather than the symptoms of a problem. If you're not using space for military purposes, then there'd be no reason to attack <laughs> space systems because you get no benefit out of it. You know, And it's no surprise really that the Russians and the Chinese have invested a lot more in various anti-satellite weapon systems since the end of the Cold War than the Americans have because the Americans were busier building and modernizing, continuing to expand their actual military and economic space infrastructure and not really rushing ahead with any major anti-satellite space weapons program. The only significant one being the counter-communication system, which is a electronic warfare capability. The rest has been subsumed under what they call ballistic missile defense, which Japan, of course, is a part of with the Aegis systems on destroyers. Those ballistic missile defenses, they don't work as ballistic missile defenses. They work as anti-satellite weapon systems. And I believe a senior US Navy official referred to the SM-3 missile in the Aegis system as a space weapon not as a ballistic missile defense weapon system. But the Chinese and the Russians really have had many different kinds of programs that have been de- that they've been developing in a fairly methodical way. Many listeners will know about the kinetic anti-satellite weapons test that the Chinese conducted in, in 2007. That was really just the most sort of dramatic and disastrous part of their large testing program, which they've continued since then, but not with any sort of actual intercepts have created debris, but they've continued a lot of flight testing with similar systems since then, which can reach higher altitudes than low Earth orbit. In terms of keeping up, it's difficult to know what keeping up means in terms of military strategy, because everyone's needs are different. The threat perceptions are different as well. So having enough of the right things and whether something is good enough is a very subjective thing. So you don't have to mirror the capabilities of others. And at the moment, the deployments of various anti-satellite weapons just aren't on the scale that would say that they're really preparing for a major sort of conventional campaign in space. But electronic warfare and cyber is really where you see most space warfare operations we've already heard from from Kazuto about intrusions into various uh, bureaucracies to gather information but computer network attacks would be a primary method of trying to just harass space systems try and find the easy targets anyone who's lacks in the cybersecurity will suffer for japan like the uk i would expect the japanese military to be heavily investing in jamming capabilities so harassing satellite communications of potential adversaries which increasingly rely on their own space systems but also against other military forces that might have space services supplied to them by other major military powers as well and on the question of dulu so co-orbital anti-satellite weapon systems is something that is currently in vogue with Russia, China and the United States doing a lot of proximity operations with other satellites in geostationary orbit. And the work of Astroscale is interesting because it's yeah, it's sort of a classic dual use technology in that, yes, take out a piece of junk, you could take out something that actually is being used. And it's a matter of regulation and transparency if you want to reduce the threats because too many people are technocratic in the way they approach problems in space. They just look at the technology and then think anything is a threat. Well, yes, but that's a banal and generic observation. Like, you know, peasants can gather pitchforks and kill people. They don't need an AK-47. <laughs> Similarly in space, anything is potential ramming weapon. It doesn't mean it's a good idea or that it's going to happen at scale. Or it doesn't mean that you can't do anything about it. So satellite refueling or debris cleanup 
it's about transparency and regularity of operations. And it's a very different thing if you have maybe two operations a year and they're very well publicized, there's complete transparency and they are pop-up systems as well. So they are launched, do their mission and then come back down or you know, they end their mission. Regulation and behavior in that sense is far more important than, than just the sort of the, the base technological capability. A couple of points I like to make. Bledney has mentioned a very interesting point. It's the matter of the how you behave. I mean, the behavior is a message. You know, you, you need to make sure that how your actions will be taken by the other people in the community. The transparency is important, but also, you know, how to behave in space is very important. If you move suspiciously across the orbits and, and try to reach closer to someone's satellite, then that, that's already a message that, uh, that you have some interest. The other point I'd like to make is that the space is very unique. I mean, the space is different from air, land, and sea because it's not a zero-sum domain. No matter how many satellites you have, that doesn't mean that you are militarily superior. You have space capabilities because you need to have them. I mean, for example, Ledin initially mentioned that the UK is lagging behind Japan and India. Maybe, yes, but in terms of, you know, military communication satellite, the UK is far more advanced than Japan or India. And, you know, each country has developed its own space system based on their needs. And for Japan, the Japanese self-defense force is a self-defense force, which are supposed to be a territorial defense, which means, you know, it's not designed to, you know, move around and station in other countries and fight the war everywhere on the earth. It's not like the U.S. forces. Japanese demand for space capabilities is basically focused on this, you know, territorial defense. So that's why we don't need, you know, a lot of spy satellites or telecommunication satellites which covers the entire world because we don't have self-defense force agents receiving those the other end in, in South America or, or in Africa. I think we need to think in this way that, you know, it's not the race in a larger sense. China is developing the military capabilities because China has some intention to expand its uh, military capabilities and go beyond the first island line defense or, you know, nine dash line. They, they do have this idea of expanding their military activities geographically. And that's why you need to have more satellites in order to enable the PLA, the People's Liberation Army activities. But for Japan, having the space capabilities seems to be a message that the self-defense force is expanding its activity. And that's not true because the Japanese defense posture and the defense doctrine is not based on such an expansive expeditionary uh, forces. This is something that is unique in space that, you know, space capability is not just having a nice rocket and satellites that's a great point uh, as well. And I think distinguishing between different kinds of space activities is important. So we don't sort of start conflating 
lunar exploration with the military balance on Earth. They are very different topics. You know, it's like saying, you know, James Cameron conquered the seas because he went down to the Marianas Trench in a submarine. <laughs> you know, that has you know, no no military significance whatsoever, but it's a feat of science and engineering. That's sort of the same as China putting a robot on the far side of the moon. An excellent technical achievement has no bearing on Chinese military power now. Nothing at all. There are lots of interesting points that I actually want to dig further, but there are emerging kind of space partnerships. You mentioned the kind of close cooperation between U.S. and Japan on the military front, for instance, uh, the Quad playing a role in rules making. You mentioned regulation and behavior and, and more on the kind of rules making side to shape the space environment. What are the key bilateral, minilateral, multilateral initiatives that you think we should be watching in the coming years that we haven't really talked about yet today? And for Suzuki-sensei, what do you think are the major headwinds for Japan's to achieve its space goals? Thanks. The two sort of big things. So one at the moment, you know, the UK is pushing the responsible behaviours resolution at the UN General Assembly. Personally, I'm quite sceptical as to what intangible terms would be agreed on that, whether we will get greater details on agreed rules of behaviour in space. But, you know, we'll have to see. Um, it's, It's good that they're carrying on to talk about this, but other forums at the United Nations have been deadlocked for years where nothing really gets agreed. So other technical forums such as the long-term sustainability guidelines, for example, there may be some technical agreements between some countries or something may happen there. And then also the Artemis Accords. So for those more interested in space exploration, um, it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, comes from the Artemis Accords because everyone who wants to cooperate with the Americans now on lunar exploration, you have to sign up to this broad framework of the Artemis Accords. Now, the details aren't really settled, but that could be a new sort of rule norms making forum for the long term as well but that's a very long term issue well there are many challenges and japan japanese space has been always uh, facing the the challenges of domestic uh, forces um, i mean there are number of cases that you know the japanese opposition parties are very much against the images of space and space as a sort of a combat domain or war domain and japan should not go into that because of the peaceful constitutions etc so that's one of the issue the other thing is i think there is a problem of the changes of the u.s space programs i mean the united states has been shifting from the traditional you know government oriented space program to more commercial oriented space program so the nasa is now outsourcing the transport of the uh, astronauts to international space station by private companies they are now involving lots of commercial companies for providing the intelligence services the problem is that the american government is contracting with the companies then there is limited capabilities for the Japanese government to cooperate with United States because, you know, they they are using the American industry and American companies as a package. The traditional interstate, intergovernmental cooperation is now getting in a different tones. But the United States is moving towards more outsourcing to the commercial actors and companies whereas the Japanese government remains a sort of a government-oriented space program. So this is the sort of a problem of coordination between the, the two allies. That's a great point. Finally, I would like to ask the two scholars um, the Japan memo questions. So starting from Kazuto-sensei, do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? 
my good friend uh, Alex Brukowski, who has been working on the EU relationship, and he gives uh, it gives a more uh, interest on the e- European audience. So the the EU Japan partnership in the shadow of China. So this is a, a recent book. I think it's uh, published in 2019. This is a great book to see the geo strategic issue around Japan and how it relates to EU. Yeah,、um, I have two actually. I recommend、uh, NASA in the World by John Krieg, yeah, Angelina Callahan, and Ashok Maharaj. That book has a lot of great case studies in the long history of NASA's engagement with Europe, Japan, and India. There's a lot of stuff there on the、um, industrial competition and political frictions in those environments. So that is well worth the read. Also, I recommend In Defense of Japan by. Pekinen and、um, Kalender Umetsu, one of the few books dedicated on Japan and space policy. I hope that、um, whoever's listening might be tempted to write, do research, and write a book on Japan and space, please, because we need more of that in the English language. At least I can't speak for other languages,、um, other than Welsh, of course. But there's not a lot in Welsh either on this. You might be surprised to learn. Thank you, Kaso Sensei. The second question: What do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Japan can solve the problem. With its technology, I mean, Japan is pretty much outdated in terms of the application of technology. For example, when there was a COVID pandemic, there was a exchange of the information through fax. You know, we do use fax today, and we don't have this high tech solution. You know, we are we are depending heavily on the low tech. This is related to today's discussion. I mean,、uh, Japan has a lot of technological seeds. And Japan has a lot of technological gadgets, but application to the social system is something different. You know, having a technology and using it is different thing. So Japan has a lot of technology, but I think Japan is failing to take advantage of technology that we have. One of the things that surprises a lot of the students is really the, the size of the Japanese maritime self-defense forces. So in terms of the maritime Naval balance of power, conventionally speaking, in the Asia Pacific, that Japan is extremely significant and is indispensable as an ally of the United States because the navy is quite large and very well equipped, very busy. The importance of the Japanese maritime self-defense forces is really important, and that. Just the size and the quality of it does surprise a lot of my students and fellow academics.、Uh, I would argue as well, not just my students. Thank you, Kazuo Sensei and Bladen, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Tour Program and the WIWS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at. At Yuka Kushino or guests at at KS dash one zero one three and at BLEDDB. Thanks again, and see you next time.